Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is January 20th, 2022, and I'm really excited for this first story we're going to be discussing, mainly because I've been following the saga, if you want to call it that, that Sue endured in order to write it. We're talking about the accelerated approval withdrawal of Avastin in breast cancer and the pending hearing on the withdrawal of the preterm birth drug, Makena. So, Sue, how many years did you spend getting the documents from the FDA for the, on this? <laughs> well, I got them in bits and pieces, but in total, it took six years under FOIA. And they were heavily redacted by the time I got them. I had I had FOIA documents from Cedar, Sieber, and the Office of the Commissioner um, related to the Avastin withdrawal. And they were heavily redacted by the time I got them. And I had to appeal some redactions, and that was not terribly successful. But in the end, when you when you read through all 2,600 pages of the documents that I got, you really got a sense of how incredibly time-consuming and resource-intensive and just burdensome, this whole process of having to conduct a hearing under the accelerated approval regulations was for the FDA staff when it came to Avastin. And in our coverage, um, I tried to point out some of the challenges they faced. I mean, it was the first hearing of its kind, so they had to kind of figure out how to navigate this, how to present the questions to the advisory committee. They had to deal with advisory member, committee member concerns about this issue is too political or is, is Genentech going to ruin my reputation um, if I ask them questions about Avastin. So there was a whole slew of challenges that they had to navigate in this first ever hearing. And I looked at this um, because I wanted to put it in the context of what will be coming for the McKenna hearing. The McKenna hearing is still not scheduled yet. We expect it in 2022 because um, Celia Witten, who is the presiding officer, is already talking about adding people to the advisory committee. She's asked for input on what specialties should be added to the advisory committee. She's asked for input on the format of the hearing and she has pointed to what was done with Avastin in terms of how she thinks she will run the hearing at this point. So we're expecting the hearing to be sometime in 2022, we're not sure when. But I thought it was an interesting look back at Avastin as to what we might see coming up with McCain. It's, it, it's, it's interesting and I, I guess, you know, the obviously, you know, the the one time they've done it before, so that's the only, really the only, the only kind of look back that we actually have to compare this to. But I mean, and maybe I'm just maybe I'm just reading too much into this. But I mean, do is the FDA going to be able to do this given the amount of work that obviously went involved? I mean, they're talking about nights, weekends, weekend meetings. You know, all this, all this kind of stuff leading that led up to the Avastin hearing because they had because they were you know as they were getting ready to do it all that plus all the work that's being required of the pandemic plus all the regular work that they would do if even if there was a pandemic and the staff's already exhausted so you know i mean i i guess i i don't know i'm wondering if 
they're going to have the energy to do this and you know if they're going to be really kind of in a rush to kind of get it scheduled well i don't think there's been any issue with regard to rush because the timetable has already far exceeded what the timetable was for avastin from start to finish and we still don't even have a schedule yet a hearing scheduled yet from mckenna i think that may be part of the problem is fda is preoccupied with other things right now and has been for almost two years at this point. So McCain certainly has not moved at a very quick pace. Um, I mean, the, the sense I tried to get across in my story is that pretty much this is the last thing FDA needs right now is to be dealing with something as time intensive and resource burdensome as a hearing under the accelerated approval regulations. Yeah, it's really a remarkable package, uh, uh, Sue. Uh, part of our uh, you know, series of sort of uh, year in preview stories, as we're calling them, uh, um, uh, pink sheet perspectives. Uh, um, one of the stories that uh, uh, Sue did, uh, um, along with our uh, um, uh, you know design team, was uh, um, this uh, timeline. As we're kind of looking at the uh, um, McKenna uh, milestones in terms of this withdrawal process and uh, uh, versus Avacin, and it's just uh, it's so much longer than. Uh, um, than it uh, um, than it was with the vast and uh, um, as Sue says it sort of it hasn't even sort of started to uh, hit the sort of the, the big uh, the big milestones yet and you know part of that may be the uh, the pandemic and just sort of kind of the uh, the overall stress that uh, um, FDA uh, um, feels from that you know part of that may be just sort of kind of some uh, residual uh, uh, you know uh, pain and uh, nervousness from the uh, uh, the the Avastin uh, uh, process, which sort of seems, uh, uh, by all accounts, quite bruising, uh, you know, from uh, the the uh, the things that Sue has gathered uh, um, there. And part of it is it's just it's in some ways different than Avastin. It's not just withdrawing an indication. It would be withdrawing the whole product, so there would be no sort of even off-label access. So I think sort of FDA is probably sort of kind of uh, moving very carefully because of that as as well. So it's a really uh, interesting dynamic to think, think about sort of all what's going on uh, here that's leading up to this sort of kind of, uh, you know, it could be sort of a fairly uh, um, uh, fairly dicey situation for uh, um, for FDA uh, um, this year if this, this, this hearing does happen uh, um, in 2022. Uh, um, you know, I think the fact that it's probably going to be virtual will sort of kind of change the uh, dynamic. There won't be sort of kind of, uh, you know, angry crowds at um, at what looked like they were with uh, Avastin, but uh, it'll be very interesting to see what uh, what happens. Right. One former FDAer who I interviewed who was involved in the Avastin process noted that if it is virtual, that will take a lot of the emotion out of it. The Avastin hearing was very emotional. There was a two hour, the meeting opened with a two hour public hearing and it, you know, it was sort of gut wrenching at times. So I, you know, I agree that virtual, it's going to, it's going to create more distance, I think. Um, less tension in the room, as the people I talked to were saying. And to your point, Matt, the, there is a big difference with Avastin. Avastin, there was there was no question that Avastin was ever going to come off the market. It was just going to lose an indication at most. Macana is the this is the only indication for which it is approved. It's also the only drug approved to prevent preterm birth. So if this comes off the market, FDA has also said that the active ingredient they will not allow the active ingredient to be compounded. So if this comes off the market, there's going to be nothing. And so that's why there's there's been concern in the professional societies about um, keeping the stroke on the market. One of the other things that you mentioned in the story was that, um, you know, 
throughout their email exchanges with some of the advisory committee members at the time who were talking about, you know, potential for like legal exposure in the wake of this and, and so forth. I mean, in your reporting, I mean, has that been resolved? I mean, or is it, you know, was that just kind of like seen as a, you know, kind of a, you know, just like a, because we've never done this before, we don't know what's going to happen in the aftermath type of question, or, you know, could they have this same kind of problem again as they put together the committee for this? Well, there may certainly be people who are reluctant to serve on the committee. Um, I think there were just so many unknowns, you know, not only among FDA, but among the committee members about, well, this meeting is going to work differently, you know, is, is, is the sponsor going to be able to question me? <laughs> I'm supposed to be the one asking the questions, but are they going to be able to turn the tables and question me or challenge my credentials? So um, I don't think that is going to be as much of a problem given kind of the the path that they followed for Avastin. But I can definitely see where there may be experts who either don't want to participate in the hearing or, you know, are are conflicted and cannot participate. What about the the patient population here? Are they going to be as passionate as um, breast cancer patients were about, you know, who had received Avastin and the role it was in helping them? Does this have the same? You mentioned like there's certainly like doctors groups concerned about losing this option, but are patients as passionate about it as breast cancer patients were about Avastin? Well, think about a woman who has given birth at 22 weeks and whether that child survives or does not, she goes on to become pregnant a second time. Wouldn't you think she would be passionate about the subject? So I can definitely see some very high emotions at this meeting. Um, at the advisory committee meeting several years ago, where the, where the committee narrowly recommended that the drug be withdrawn, there was a pretty extensive public hearing at that one. And there's also been a lot of concerns expressed about equity because um, when minorities are at a higher risk, have a higher incidence of preterm birth. So there's that element of it too. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really you know it's an interesting topic. It's an interesting you know a really interesting package. So all you all you uh, you know the listeners out there who are wonks and really into this, uh, you know, make sure and give it a read. It's a it's a really fascinating look both behind the scenes of the invest and and then the invest hearing and then looking forward and how this will all apply to uh, you know to McKenna once we once we get to that to that portion of the uh, of the process. Next, we're going to consider FDA Commissioner nominee Robert Califf's latest comments. He doesn't seem to be limiting his public appearances now that the full Senate is considering whether to make him the permanent commissioner. Califf appeared at an Innovations and Regulatory Science Conference earlier this month and discussed rebuilding the FDA's public trust. Califf was on a panel with several former commissioners, as well as Acting Commissioner Janet Woodcock. The former commissioners raised concerns about the agency's credibility in the wake of the controversies regarding vaccine approvals, booster approvals, and other issues. But Califf was confident, saying that in three to five years, the agency's public trust would be restored, adding that Americans would have better internet connectivity as well as be eating better. So I'll throw the obvious question out to you all. Public trust is not a switch that can just be thrown and fixed. Could public confidence be rebuilt in three to five years? Is that reasonable? 
I, I mean, I just think that's possible. I think, um, you know, one thing with FDA is like the pendulum sort of swings back and forth depending on what particular products and decisions they have, uh, you know, on hand at any given time or sometimes even, you know, things that they maybe don't have a, a, a quite a direct control over, you know, when a safety issue crops up unexpectedly post-market, you know, that kind of sometimes inhibits trust in FDA, whether that's fair or not, because sometimes these things just would never have, could never be picked up pre-market, you know, so I think, you know, that's a decent amount of time for the pendulum to switch. It's it's really hard to know, though, from Caleb's comments, like, what he thinks they could do proactively to sort of restore trust and credibility. Um, and certainly we know there's probably going to be some um, high stakes decisions for FDA, I think, probably coming up in the near future, perhaps before he gets confirmed, but maybe after related to, you know, more decisions related to COVID vaccines and are more boosters needed or how do they handle the approval of vaccines for young kids. So um, he could have a lot of challenges quite shortly after getting confirmed. Yeah, we've certainly seen even just uh, um, uh, today, uh, Sarah, you know, a lot of uh, correspondence from uh, congressional Republicans who are questioning, uh, you know, FDA's review activity on uh, um, uh, therapeutics. And, uh, um, you know, I think they used the phrase uh, um, Operation Snail Speed to suggest we're going to FDA isn't going fast enough on uh, um, on this. So, uh, um, you know, there's no, there's no shortage of, uh, of critics about sort of, kind of what FDA is uh is uh, falling short on, uh, and as you said, the the challenge will be um, to come up with a plan to kind of to uh, to uh, not just sort of stop the erosion, but just kind of to uh, to rebuild and to uh, you know put up some very strong sort of uh, reputational retaining wall for the uh, um, for the agency and sort of kind of uh, you know it's not impossible, but it's a lot easier to tear something down than to uh, um, than to build it up uh, um, and uh, um, whatever plan uh, um, Caleb might have to. Uh, Restore reputation. It's sort of uh, um, at this point, we're kind of really close to his vest as to uh, uh, what might happen in, uh, um, in that regard. And uh, um, we're interested to see if he does get confirmed. Uh, um, uh, as, as you noted last week, it's sort of not a uh, um, not a sure thing, uh, um, you know, given the uh, dynamics of the uh, the abortion pill uh, uh, fight that are emerging. But uh, um, you know, he uh, um, he certainly seems to be focused on it, and we're going to have uh, um, have it on top of mind. So it's. Uh, um, uh, you know, something that the reveal will uh, clearly be working on if he gets to uh, gets to White Oak. Yeah, so I guess. The, sorry, go ahead, sir. Oh, sorry, I was going to say the other thing is like, there's sort of the FDA, whatever public I think mistrust um, or distrust in FDA credibility and so forth is going on right now. I think it's you have to think about it in this context of there's this broader <laughs> issue going on. I think in American yes. society where there's a lot of polarization in terms of. Um, which groups of people often, depending on political affiliation, are sort of trusting of government scientists and government and sort of certain types of expertise in general. So I think likely to be successful, FDA has to sort of work in conjunction with everybody working on that broader effort because this is not an FDA-specific issue. It's this broader dynamic that you know, obviously people, particularly in the anti, in the vaccine space, you know, dealing with anti-vaccine sentiments have been trying to work on for years, but it, it, it's hard and it seems to be peaking and getting 
worse. So I think FDA would have to somehow tackle this in conjunction with a broader kind of societal effort. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you know to think about this. If if you know, I mean, you come up with a plan. Is the plan to kind of you know hope that kind of the you know the the attitude or of the of you know the public in general or you know kind of things die down so to speak so there's kind of less attention on the agency and every single little move they make so you know you can kind of you know everyone can kind of relax for a minute and then maybe that's when kind of credibility kind of can can start building up again or is there something actively like Sarah said proactively that they can do say you know to kind of get people to you know, to start believing, you know, to, you know, kind of improve the, you know, public confidence and, and so forth. I don't, I don't know if, if, you know, you can come out and say, you know, be confident in me. I'm, you know, we're back or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you can through kind of, uh, um, have an explicit campaign to say, you know, trust us again. Um, it's done as we're going to be, uh, be more, um, more actions and deeds than, uh, um, the declarations uh, um, in terms of sort of kind of how to uh, um, how to build that back up, but uh, you know, to Sarah's point, it's not like there's sort of kind of a constituency out there that says like, oh, I you know I, I listen to the CDC but not FDA. I think it's sort of a more a more general uh, perception of sort of kind of uh, you know institutions and uh, um, in all society that are sort of taking a beating as uh, um, this pandemic sort of kind of grinds on. So uh, um, it's a uh, it's a real challenge uh, not just for uh, um, for the agency but for uh, for everyone that's sort of kind of uh, you know, wants to, uh, um, you know, work as, a, you know, in government or as, a, as, as part of a broader, uh, broader institution. Yeah, I mean, Matt, you mentioned the, um, the Republicans putting pressure on the FDA around, you know, COVID therapeutics, and it's not clear they actually have a lot of, or any data to sort of back up their claim that FDA is being slow. But then Derek also wrote um, the other week about this, um, concern from Republicans about the sort of language that went along with the COVID monoclonal antibodies that mentioned, you know, that certain um, groups of people like um, Black people, Hispanics, et cetera, certain minority populations in the U.S. were maybe helped. That was part of something that made them higher risk and in need of the antibodies. And um, Republicans have recently taken issue with that, saying that's racist and so forth. And, um, seems like, well, first of all, I noted that um, there's some CDC data that recently came out that showed actually white people are having a much easier time accessing <laughs> these drugs than um, people of color. But also that, like, I think it speaks to sort of this, you know, again, this politicization and this lack of understanding that, you know, of what's sort of known as like the social determinants of health and um, things that make people maybe more vulnerable to disease in our society because of the way our society is structured. And, um, you know, I just don't know how FDA combats that when you have, again, certain political dynamics that, um, you know, those political forces don't necessarily seem like they're going to be willing to listen to the facts (laughs) behind the decision. Yeah, it's a, it was, it was, it was hard to kind of, you know, that story was difficult to do because you're trying not to, you know, like lend oxygen to the whole, you know, the, the, the overall overarching issue itself, but you're trying to explain kind of how the label's written, why that's in there, and then kind of put that in context of what, 
people are think they're reading and it's yeah it i i don't know how you i don't know how you deal with that i mean the, the fact is there's cdc data and just like sarah you pointed out there's cdc data that says minority groups several of them um blacks hispanics latinos american indians have high, a high significantly higher risks of hospitalization and death compared to whites they've done that 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 research that has found that and there's a bunch of things that go into why that's the case but when you have a when you have a, a series of drugs that are in short supply and they're supposed to prevent progression to serious illness when you have you know groups subpopulations that are at high at you know uh, significantly higher risk of hospitalization and death you know you feel like that should be scientifically that should be noted for the physicians to you know to consider when they're you know trying to figure out who you know how, how to treat uh, you know some of these patients and um one there was one one case the the state of new york it had issued orders on um in addition to uh the the fact sheets that the fda put out saying that it's saying kind of the same thing that you know the uh, race or ethnicity could be a you know could be a factor in in you know in this and um it, it's just a you know that that seemed to be kind of what what generated at least some of the some of the questions about it but um yeah it, it's it's just a difficult one to it's a difficult issue to explain in turn including why something like this would be you know why that why that you know kind of occurs yeah like like sarah's saying the uh, the easy soundbite that's kind of you know you shouldn't uh, um distribute uh, medicines based on people's race uh, um obviously sort of kind of sound good as, as a uh, um a, a valid criticism but uh you know what uh, um you know fda and other public health officials are trying to say is that this is a um, useful shorthand for uh, um, underlying medical conditions that uh, um, you know you should take into consideration. So uh, um, how that uh, um, plays out will be, uh, um, you know, again, sort of kind of something that sort of kind of determines FDA's sort of kind of overall reputation. The state of New York also told us that they're not giving out, they're not, uh, you know, determining access to any of these treatments based on somebody's race. That's not a, it's not a decision point at all. So. Finally today, we're going to look at dispensing problems with two of the new oral COVID-19 treatments. Pfizer's Paxlovid and Merck's Molnupiravir, which received EUAs in December, are being distributed by pharmacies for free under purchasing agreements with the government. But even though supplies are limited at the moment, pharmacists are complaining about that, that the uh, fees for dispensing are not, are not adequate for what it's costing them to, to do the work. The National Community Pharmacy Association has asked CMS for relief before some refuse to give out the drugs because they can't justify the cost. NCPA said the highest dispensing fee seen so far is $10.50, but they it actually should be about $40. So I'm going to throw this out to Sarah and Matt who, and and Sue who understand this better than I do, but uh, you know, what what is it, what is the uh, you know the issue here? Sue, do you want to uh, open the blister pack on this one and uh, break, it, <laughs> break it down for us? Sure. Well, there should be a story coming out in the pink sheet soon. Um, I did a, uh, I looked at the EUA review for Paxlovid, and it's pretty extensive, and they go into a lot of detail about um, dose adjustments. 
people with moderate renal impairment require dose adjustment for this drug, but that is not, that dose adjustment is sort of not compatible with how the drug is packaged. So the drug is packaged, um, it's a five-day regimen, and you take it twice a day, and it's, um, for a standard dose, it's three different pills that you take twice a day because it, it combines two drugs. And for those who have moderate renal impairment, the pharmacist has to remove two pills from every package, every blister pack. They've got to cover up those empty missing pill sections with stickers. Then they've got to add stickers in some other places on the blister packs. And they have to do this for all five blister packs. Um, and then they also have to counsel the patient <laughs> about the renal dosing instructions and notify them that their blister cards have been altered by the pharmacy. Obviously, a patient's going to be concerned if they, you know, if it looks like their medicine has been tampered with. So that's one big issue just in terms of how burdensome and time-consuming this is going to be for, for pharmacists. And second of all, there's a long list of uh, contraindicated drugs um, for Paxlovid, and the um, healthcare provider EUA worksheet uh, fact sheet includes a seven-page table of drugs that are contraindicated or may have other potentially significant drug interactions with Paxlovid. So you can see how a pharmacist would get involved um, in that regard and having to try to counsel a patient and make sure that there aren't any drugs that are going to interfere um, with this antiviral. So this isn't really comparable to administering a, a vaccine shot. Well, I think I think it's different, right? I mean, right. But I mean, administering the shots is obviously taking up some toll on pharmacies because there's that the actual labor of having to physically do the administration. And that's different. But yeah, this um, seems like it requires a lot more back and forth potentially with the doctor, more discussion with a patient than, you know, it's not your typical just hand the script over. <laughs> um, they, you know, give you the bottle and you go on your way. You know, people, people are going to need more counseling. They might need to, you know, if you go to a pharmacy you've never been before and they don't have access to your, what other medications you're taking, they may need to contact your physician's office um, or the prescriber. And I think this also comes, you brought up the vaccines, but I think this comes in the context of pharmacies um, around the country have already been um, sort of complaining that they are um, overwhelmed <laughs> at this point, dealing with the additions of the COVID response and all the vaccination campaigns. Um, in addition to the responsibilities, there's actually, I know there's been a lot of talk about um, shortages of workers and you know hospitals and those sorts of facilities but there's actually a pharmacist shortage in this country right so um there's labor issues here in terms of this being a decent heavy lift and them just you know being asked to do more and more during a pandemic where they don't have as much staff as they really need to be keeping everything going yeah the uh, the reimbursement dynamics are interesting too the you know the uh just like uh um Vaccines, the uh, COVID therapeutics are supposed to be uh, um, free for folks during the emergency uh, 
but that doesn't guarantee that they'll be able to get them either because of uh, supply issues or if uh, the people that are uh, um, supposed to be administering them uh, don't feel they're being adequately compensated to uh, um, to actually do it. So there's a lot of uh, um, it's not just a matter of uh, making the, the the drugs free. It's uh, it's making sure that the drugs can actually get in people's hands. And of course, these drugs come with the sort of the need to get it, you know, in within a certain amount of days of testing positive for them to really work well. So um, patients don't have that much time, right, to be chasing, um, going around town or whatever to find the pharmacy that can help them. Um, you know, it's not like maybe, you know, waiting a week or two to start a cholesterol lowering medicine. They really need to start it as soon as possible after that positive test to have the best chance of it making a difference in their outcome. Yeah, it's a this is a, another really you know kind of interesting issue that you know in, that you really don't think about. Just like you know the with the the vaccine rollout, it was just kind of like oh it, you know pharmacies are already you know doing flu shots and so forth. They can they can give the COVID vaccine too, and you know is the 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 extra labor. Just some people you know a lot of times you just don't you don't think about it because you don't realize what's going on and you know kind of behind the counter so to speak. It's a it's a it's another you know, kind of interesting uh, you know problem to come to light here. I'm curious how they you know how they end up dealing with that. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.